Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal agriculture. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell. I'll be your host here tonight at The Real Science Exchange, and we're here to discuss something new and an exciting alternative for the future, and that's insect protein. Tonight, we'll discuss how we can use uh, insects to turn waste into protein, and we're going to be doing that with uh, a couple leading experts on the topic. I'd first like, though, to introduce um, Katerina Unger. She's the CEO and founder of Live In Farms, a leading company in the field of edible insects and novel food innovations. Uh, so welcome, Katerina. Good to see you again. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Hey, I wanted to share a real quick story about how you and I first met. And this goes back to last November at the uh, Eurotier. Um, um, uh, one of our colleagues, he works. His name's Eric Schwab. He works for um, Vita Plus in Wisconsin. He came by our booth and he said, and we were talking about the the webinar. He says, "I just met this young lady. You got to go talk to her. You got to put her on the webinar." And so uh, it was shortly after that I hunted you down. Uh, so anyway, glad to have you and glad Eric pointed us out uh, to you because it was a very exciting webinar that we had just, uh, uh, I think it was last, uh, it was in January. Glad you did. So, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, you're very welcome. Um, as is the custom, this is a pubcast and we are in a virtual pub. Uh, Katerina, what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking coffee, in fact. Um, so out of our Living Farms mug. Um, and I just uh, told the story earlier that uh, uh, Vienna is a great coffee town. So if you ever get to visit, we're the most livable city in the world, uh, or so they nice. claim. It's a beautiful city. Uh, and we drink a lot of coffee here in all kinds of forms, shapes and sizes. Um, and also our insects love to eat a part of the coffee. So the spent coffee grounds can be included in uh, the insect diet, at least up to about 10%, not usually wow. more than that. Um, so yeah, every now and then we use our spent coffee here from drinking also for, for all sorts of tests. Uh, very well. Well, thank you for that story. And I see you brought a guest with you this evening. Uh, would you mind introducing your guest for us? Yes. So I brought my colleague, uh, Pratiba Yadav, Dr. Pratiba Yadav. Uh, she's our head of entomology. Um, she worked around the world um, with insects, with all kinds of insects. And she's with us for a couple of years now uh, and leading our uh, research and development uh, in, uh, in the biology field. All right, cool. Uh, Pratiba, so uh, in the theme of the Hi, pub, what are, you, what are you drinking tonight? What's in your glass? Well, since it's a pub cast, I'm drinking a beer. It's uh, one of the, um, I think, second largest brewery in Vienna for craft beer called, called 100 Blumen. Uh, and continuing on what uh, Katrina said, I also thought it would be a super cool idea to uh, drink something. Uh, whose byproduct can be consumed by our black soldier fly larvae. Spent grain, which is like the end product of beer brewing, is a really good uh, feed substrate for black soldier fly larvae. Uh, cool. You know, I was reading your bio and I was found it to be very interesting. You worked with, um, uh, was it insect robots? And then you learned to uh, control the, the, the swarms of desert locusts. <laughs> what, what can you tell me about that? 
Yes, so so uh, for my PhD, I was still in basic entomology. I was uh, exploring like the parasitoid behavior in terms of uh, uh, where do they lay eggs. Uh, but towards the end of it, I was really fascinated by insect-inspired robotics. And that's where I switched the field and got into programming and algorithm development. And uh, for my postdoc in Israel, I was working with Desert Locus uh, and I was working with a team of engineers who were actually designing the robot. And the biologist uh, side of it was to develop the algorithm to control these robots so that eventually we would release these robots in the swarm of a natural swarm of desert locusts. And then they would manipulate the whole swarm to go away from the fields, maybe towards the Mediterranean and just <laughs> drown there. Oh, <laughs> and so that way maybe uh, a technological approach to uh, protect crops from desert locusts. Wow, and is it gonna work? Mm, it's still work in progress. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I, I searched the field for a more faster, impactful field, uh, and also also the COVID accelerated, but yes, the project is still going ongoing, uh, and we will wait and see. It's, it is a bit ambitious because it's not so easy to manipulate a natural behavior of insects. Yeah, 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 I understand. Well, and finally, I'm excited to welcome back a good friend and knowledgeable co-host in the field of protein, and that's Dr. Ryan Ordway from the Balchem team. Uh, Ryan, welcome back to the pub. Hey, thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Yeah, so what's in your glass tonight? I am drinking. I have gotten turned on to um, high-end rums uh, about a year ago, I think I've told you, and I just found one this weekend that is uh, from a... It's a Caribbean rum, but it's actually from a distillery in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Oh, very so nice. Uh, Virginia is my favorite state in the uh, country. I've been to most of the states, and it's not my home state, but it's still <laughs> one of my favorites. Yeah. And I uh, thought I would try it. Yeah. So it's pretty good deal. Pretty good. Well, in honor of our topic tonight, I'm having uh, what we call a grasshopper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And if, you, if uh, for the listeners out there, if you've not ever had one, it's made with uh, cocoa cream uh, and cream de menthe and a little bit of half and half. So it's quite heavy. It's quite green, but it is tasty. So, uh, you know, in honor of the theme tonight, here's to a great podcast. Cheers. 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 Tonight's podcast stories are brought to you by Keisher Plus Amino Acid Chelated Minerals from Balchem. Keisher Plus delivers a higher concentration of minerals with a superior amino acid profile. The higher mineral content adds formulation flexibility, opening up space in the diet, and reducing the carbon footprint. The Keisher Plus line also offers a granulated form for improved handling characteristics and reduced dust. Visit balchem.com to learn more. All right. So, Katerina, back in January, you had a, a, a great webinar. I uh, really enjoyed that one. Um, and you shared some innovative ways that we can utilize insect protein um, for use 
to be sustainable for people and animals. Uh, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how did you get started in the um, insect protein business? Sure. So uh, my personal background is in product development. So I've been around the world working in uh, um, developing consumer electronics products, medical products, uh, uh, down to actually cars uh, and so on for the consumer space. Um, but my, uh, my personal background, my family background is actually in farming. So I grew up on an organic farm uh, in the southeast of uh, Austria. My grandfather was a miller's man, so uh, I grew up in the miller's house. Um, so the production of food, the, uh, the rearing of animals, of livestock um, is something close to my heart. Uh, so I decided to go back to that topic um, uh, even more so when I ended up working in Hong Kong at a point and um, I, I felt I had the abundance of food uh, you know, in front of me, uh, but at the same time, I couldn't see any spot where that actually comes from and how is how it is grown. Um, so I started to investigate how uh, how do we actually produce livestock on a larger uh, scale? Um, um, what does it mean in terms of resources? Um, and then ended up with the topic of livestock feed, um, where we do actually spend most of the resources and where also a lot of carbon emissions, of course, uh, come to play, come into play. So that's where we can have a real positive impact um, with insects. Um, and so, yes, that was my, my journey or my start, the start of my journey um, to, to find out how we could grow protein on the smallest possible footprint. And I think until this day, um, and the acceleration of this insect industry kind of proves that, that the insect can be a very good option for that. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the premise. You want to do it on the smallest footprint. Uh, what are some other advantages? Why insect protein? And does the world really need another protein, right? Yes, I think uh, uh, the interesting thing is really that the discussion about insects and the inclusion of insect protein in foods as well as feeds uh, has changed quite a bit uh, in the past 10 years since I'm in the field. So very early on, it was claimed to be, okay, the next meat, you know, the next thing that we're going to that we're going to eat, we will have to eat insects. It was quite dramatic, actually. Um, and, uh, and, and now, since there are so many uh, plant-based alternatives as well, out there in the marketplace, um, it has shifted more from this quite food-centric approach to uh, to a sy systematic approach of okay, what kind of impact can we have if we feed insect protein to animals? Where does it have benefits there? Uh, and it does have grand benefits if we think of it as a um, as an animal protein that is digestible, that is very well digestible, um, that is very uh, very um, well to be eaten, so animals just love it. It uh, it attracts also, you know, the um, the gusto, as we say in Europe. So the taste, you know, they they just love to eat more of it as well. Um, and uh, um, of course, the environmental impact uh, is great. So um, we say we we make uh, waste to protein factories. Um, so what we offer to our customers that are often coming from food and feed processing industry is that we set up factories for them that process as much as possible the waste that occurs in their production sites. So, for example, uh, potato-based wastes, bread wastes, depending on the type of uh, production it is. 
um, and feeds it to insect larvae. So in that way, we can feed real organic byproducts that oftentimes don't have a market right now or that are a loss in, term, in, in, in terms of uh, financials for our customers into protein uh, and into revenue again and into a great product that can help livestock as well as pets uh, grow really well. No, I was just going to ask Katarina, the, uh, I think you had mentioned in your webinar about, you know, the, the insect, uh, the black soldier flies can only live really in more warmer climates. But if you're farming them, you can basically put these anywhere in the world, correct? That is correct. That is correct. It's even more beneficial, uh, to be honest, to grow them in colder climates. That's kind of a juxtaposition because um, we always think that in warmer climates where they actually can thrive naturally, it would maybe make more sense. However, if we think of uh, dense growing environments uh, where the insects live in production units that are the size of a a pellet, the size of a you know pellet-sized tray, for example, um, they live there in great density, so they produce a lot of heat. So actually, uh, one of the largest topics in insect production is the ventilation of those insect production units to actually draw off heat and cool the systems. So actually, there we have a benefit of growing them in more northern regions uh, where it's colder outside so we need actually less energy to cool down the systems plus uh, we have a higher biosecurity if you want uh, because if uh, insects ever are released into the wild or if that happens to be released for whatever reason into the wild they actually cannot survive they won't survive the winters uh, in more northern regions that's pretty fascinating are yeah. you able so along that line are you able to sort of in uh in dairy production where they're capturing methane are you able to sort of waste is there any generation that you could get off of the the heat that's coming off of them in terms of energy generation yes there is a lot of way to to recycle um recycle heat streams uh to recycle energies especially when we think of a co-location model as to say so uh where we where we put insect uh, rearing facilities next to uh, the sites where wastes are produced, there's typically uh, heat or, or you know, energy produced quite sustainably on site or that we can source in a sustainable way into insect production uh, uh, factories right next by um, and use that energy. Also in the system itself, what we, for example, implemented here in our factory, in our demonstration factory in Vienna, is a system where we can take the uh, moisture that comes out in the drying process of the insect and recycle that moisture, that water back into the system because you need to rear them at a slightly higher uh, uh, ambient moisture. Um, but we're, we're really only at the beginning right now, uh, even though this industry is industrializing, you know, we see the first production sites, we're, we're, we're going to put a lot of factories out there uh, for, for the carbon emission saving uh, uh, technology of insect production. However, there's so much more uh, to be made better uh, and to be improved. Thanks. Yeah, Scott, you mentioned got about a hundred questions. No, that's all right. right. <laughs> well, I'm just curious. You know, we were talking about water. Um, how how water intensive is uh, insect raising? 
Well, I think uh, Pratiba can, can, can talk about that fact because most of the water uh, is actually in the feed. Yeah, I mean, the feed is like insects, like all other living organisms, are almost like 70% water. Uh, and uh, they need feed also around that range. Of course, the feed consumption changes based on uh, how moist the feed is, but then that also is uh, intertwined with how much nutrient. So the more moisture you have, the more water you have, the less nutrient density you have in the given quantity of feed and vice versa. If the moisture is less, the more nutrients are there, but probably the consumption will be a bit less because it gets dried quite faster. So, but you still try to maintain like 70 to 75% of your feed should be water. And not all of this water is being consumed by the larvae in the rearing process, but a lot of it is lost as metabolic heat uh, and then lost as moisture. So almost 70% of uh, uh, the input feed is water and out of which, again, a high percentage is lost in metabolic heat generation through water and the uh, uh, water activity also is tied with ammonia, so ammonia production in the rearing. So uh, the the water footprint is uh, significant, but uh, would still be significantly lower than other livestock farming. Also, maybe another point. Um, another point, maybe to add there is that uh, we do have a lot of water in the waste sources. Um, that we typically see uh, coming in from our customer site. So um, what you, what happens is we have, a, we call it biofeasibility. So customers send us their materials and then we test it. We include it in the insect diet. We formulate feeds, feed recipes uh, in order to grow them most efficiently. Um, and um, we did have previous biofeasibilities where um, um, big manufacturers of, of food and feed sent us materials that come out so moist from their process that in fact it becomes a huge issue to dispose of this as, as a waste because it is a, a, a huge financial cost to transport this water around and it is at the same time a huge cost to dry it down. Um, so the energy cost of drying down, down that material and then using it as a compost, for example, compost or, or fertilizer, um, it's just way too costly. There's way too much energy involved in this process. So what we did for, for that project, for example, was with insect bioconversion, we could naturally dry down the material. So the, the material came in at 80% moisture uh, content. Uh, and at the end of the process, we have larvae that come out of the process, of course. They have absorbed, they have digest, they have metabolized um, the water. Of course, there's evaporation in the process as well. Uh, but then the, the substrate comes out at around 50% uh, moisture. And then uh, it's much easier to be treated and it actually goes on as a fertilizer product then, besides the main product, which is the protein and the fats that come from the insect. Hmm. Well, we use it yeah, as I'm a sure biological Ryan. dryer, so to say. Okay, cool. I'm sure Ryan's going to have a lot of questions related to the feedstuffs, <laughs> as he is a nutritionist. But before we move on to that, I had a real quick question. So you guys are using the black soldier fly. Uh, I know that there are other insects uh, being utilized um, for this purpose. Can you give me an idea of, of, of why you selected the black soldier fly and how it might be better uh, than some of the other alternatives? And what are some of the advantages to some of the alternatives that's being looked at? Good point. Pratiba, do you want to take that? Yeah, I think uh, 
the the biggest uh, point that works in favor of black soldier flies or why we chose black soldier flies is the versatility of the larvae. Basically, the other insects are quite limited in what they can take as input and convert it into a high-value protein uh, compared to black soldier fly larvae, which are uh, kind of vociferous and uh, can consume a huge range of uh, low-quality substrates and then synthesize biomolecules and convert them into um, amino acids and then high-value proteins. And that is the biggest deciding factor. And then comes the secondary points of their biology in terms of reproductive cycle, the lifespan, the turnover of cycles at how, many, how fast they reproduce. Uh, the rearing period that the, each larva can keep consuming the feed for almost two weeks. So you don't need to put in more animals to consume the waste, whereas the same set of animals can keep consuming feed for two weeks and convert your waste into protein. So the, their lifespan, their reproductive cycle, and the fact that they can eat such a wide range of uh, substrates which range from low nutrient quality to high nutrient quality and still convert them all into a high quality end product. These are the two main critical factors in picking black soldier fly larvae over others. So can you talk a little bit, bit about um, what are some of the substrates that you guys typically use uh, or that you typically work with? Uh, what are some of the waste streams? I know you don't like to talk about waste streams in Europe but uh, or side streams I think you call them. Yes. Uh, I mean, in EU, there are also restrictions in terms of what you can uh, feed the insects uh, as they are also considered livestock. But uh, that's why we are limited in what we can. But that does not mean we are limited by what black soldier fly larvae can consume. So the, the answer to this question actually varies depending on where, which part of the world we are talking about. Uh, because in certain parts where there are no such restrictions, you we know that black soldier fly larvae can consume even animal manure and uh, things which are actually legally not permitted in uh, other parts of the world. Uh, they are also like post-consumer waste is a really good uh, substrate because of all the nutrients that are there. But again, there are limitations on what we can use there. We are primarily focused on uh, substrates that qualify as feed or uh, pre-consumer waste here in EU. So the substrate that we uh, primarily uh, have tested here or test or uh, ex uh, investigate here are uh, pre-consumer waste like fruits, vegetables, bakeries, uh, grains-based uh, end products, um, uh, brewery waste, um, and um, silage. I'm not sure if that's permitted. Uh, the, the fermented um, agricultural uh, waste product. Uh, yeah, we, we primarily restrict ourselves in the range of the products which are permitted to be uh, used. Uh, meat uh, and fish are not currently allowed, but outside EU, yes, you can include. They have beneficial uh, 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 advantages to addition to of adding it to the feed uh, as they enhance and improve the amino acid profile, fatty acid profile. But again, we are uh, in within EU, we are limited, but then it depends where we are, uh, where we want to mm -hmm. uh, set up these factories. What maybe also needs to be added is that 
uh, even if we look, so we have projects in Europe, we have projects outside of Europe. And as Pratiba mentioned, there's a there's a variety to the feeds that we are allowed and able to, to feed in those regions. Um, even within Europe, um, we see uh, a lot of variability depending on uh, the geographical location in certain countries or in certain regions even. Um, a waste stream or a byproduct stream uh, might be available at like a low cost or even for free um, or even for, um, for, a, um, for, for an added revenue. So some of our co customers actually make money on uh, on taking in those byproducts and converting them um, so so um, manufacturers uh, sometimes have to pay to to get rid of it um, um, so it depends on what type of uh, business they have what type of business model and which region they're in and depending on that we modulate our feeds um, accordingly and also another factor that is still in the early stages um, from, a, from an economic standpoint um, in, in the industry, but that we see coming up is, um, is the, 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 the purpose of the end product. So um, whether you wanna, um, we, we have, um, we, 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 we know, for example, businesses who, um, very few, but um, they have um, a very nice market to sell fats, lipids. Um, and then the nutrition of the insect, of course, has to be the density, the nutrition as well. The grow out period is different for the purpose of harvesting a more fat heavy uh, uh, um, pro end product in a protein rich product. So also there, there's um, there's vari variabilities that we can that we can play with. Hmm. So is that is that how much of the. So you're basically saying that the diet that you're feeding them greatly influences the nutrient content of those insects once you harvest them. At least the ratio, yes. uh, yeah. the ratio it does. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Okay. it's in a range, uh, but yeah. And so, what about the lipids? I'm kind of curious about that. Are you changing the fatty acid profile, the, the insects, or are they going to take into the, their bodies basically the, the fatty acid profile of what they're consuming. Yes, uh, again, like Katrina said, that the same uh, uh, logic holds true here as well. You can modulate the fatty acid composition of larvae through their diet, but only to a certain extent. Yeah. Beyond that, you cannot, no matter how much you change. So, for example, like if, if I can increase, just, just as, as an example, I can increase uh, omega-3 fatty acids by including some fish uh, offal in the diet, but not beyond a certain point, then it starts having negative effect on other uh, nutrient composition. So you can play with these parameters through diet, uh, but within a very narrow range. And th that range, how narrow, wide it is, depend on which macronutrient we're talking about, nutrient, like protein or lipids. Is there is there any negative impacts? I, I fed a quite a bit of bakery waste before to, to ruminants. And I know there's, you know, limitations, of course, on the fat content that you can't get too high or, but more importantly, on the um, sodium content, which can get pretty high in some of these uh, waste streams. Is there any limitations in that respect that you have to be careful of the products that are coming in that could have a detrimental effect? Um, I mean, other than the consistency. 
the, the fluffiness factor. The fluffiness is a factor as well. <laughs> we have to modulate, right? The density of the feed is yeah. a is a is a has a big impact. Yeah, I mean, uh, the of course, like as in case of bakery, uh, the fat accumulation will directly be related with the fat content of the input as well as uh, sugars that they are in. Uh, in terms of non-macronutrient uh, aspects of the incoming substrate, uh, what you focus is on uh, micro elements, uh, uh, the heavy metals and the toxins, uh, toxins uh, and, and also microbial infestations possible. Uh, we know uh, that black sugar fly larvae primarily do not accumulate any toxins, so they are able to degrade it, so we do not worry about those in the input diet. Uh, in heavy metals, there are some which have been shown to accumulate a bit higher than threshold, but almost everything else, no, it's below detection threshold, so it's like they are not accumulating heavy metals, but you still have to be, uh, you still have to look at the heavy metal composition. Uh, of the incoming uh, substrate and again with the micro elements as well for example calcium accumulation in black soldier fly larvae is higher than other animals but then other elements are way lower so you have to look at these uh, uh, aspects uh, and again keep it in light with what is it that you, you want your end product to be but of course heavy metal is not at all related to end product you have to make sure it's below detection threshold phytotoxin any other kind of toxins we don't have to worry about and similarly for microorganisms that uh, most of them are consumed as part of the diet but uh, if if the larvae are left in the substrate for too long and there is too long fermentation happening or too long of unhygienic conditions then not inside the gut but the larvae themselves can get infested on the surface with microorganisms and then it can have detrimental effect on the insect meal that you will prepare out of these larvae. So those, those things need to be kept in mind. Mm. You know, it strikes me that, sorry, Ryan, it strikes me that uh, uh, these um, byproducts could also be recycled through mammals. So what's the advantage of recycling them through insects versus, uh, you know, a chicken or a pig? <laughs> One is uh, definitely the environmental aspect of it. Uh, uh, one is the, the emissions that you compare in converting uh, these uh, uh, the uh, low value input to high value output, the amount of uh, uh, greenhouse gases that you emit, because this is also related to a question that I came across uh, that whether or not we can feed uh, black soldier fly larvae meal to ruminants or uh, like chicken and pigs are quite well known. And they're also, they see the same thing that you, if you substitute uh, part of the protein uh, aspect of a ruminant diet with black soldier fly larvae, you see a dip in methane production. And it's the same thing when you are converting these raw substrate, plant-based substrate to animal protein using other animals as against insects, you have much higher greenhouse gas emission and the space that you need to achieve this compared to insects, which can be grown through uh, vertical farming in less space with much, much less uh, greenhouse gas emission. So you had said it, if you feed it to ruminants, you can reduce methane production. Do you, do you understand the mode of action? 
no so oh. i think they, they they are these are really really recent studies i think like the, the last one as was it at the end of 2022 or something and they they haven't really they, they are still following it up but they place certain kind of sensors and then they just measured the gas uh, exchange compared to a diet which is not substituted with uh, black soldier fly larvae in the diet and so compared to what the one which is and then measured the gas emission and the dynamics there then without any detrimental effect they saw a dip in these gas emissions so it could be uh, that uh, it is but but yeah we do not know the mode of action there yet mm -hmm. is there Sorry, Katerina, you're going to say something. Uh, no, I was gonna gonna say um, um, that uh, the economic from like again looking at it from just a purely economical, practical approach, um, right? There are certain byproducts um, that are already that are that that are competing, so to say, uh, for like between insect substrate and um, an animal feed, for example. Um, dry bread, old bread um, that is also here in Central Europe and all over Europe, in fact, uh, being converted into like being dried, crushed and fed to pigs. Um, and um, so that that product, uh, if it occurs in larger amounts on centralized spaces, there is a market value to it. And there's definitely a competition between uh, be, is it being fed to insects or is it being fed to pigs, for example, uh, directly um, with a lot of other substrates. Um, well, first of all, the, the inclusion, uh, the percentage of inclusion is a topic here. Um, so in pig diets, you can uh, include a much smaller uh, percentage uh, into their diets than uh, in for insects, for example. Um, so we see that across a lot of different waste streams that the inclusion level can be much higher. Um, and um, another factor is simply practicability and also cost of processing processing um, so for example if we talk about pre-consumer waste such as uh, fruits and vegetables uh, in order to make this available as a pig feed um, you would need to go the extra mile to uh, you know to process it in a way that a, that pigs in an industrial setting can actually uh, uh, can actually be fed with it and it's it's not really practical in many, many ways. Well, as the insect is in an industrial process, simply an in-between step to make sure that these waste streams, these byproduct streams that are not easy to convert in other livestock production systems can be fed to insects by being crushed, mixed, and just uh, distributed into, uh, into production crates of, of insects. So it's a practicability um, of, the, of the processing and a, and a saving also of, um, of investment costs and 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 uh, processing costs, oftentimes. Is is there any potential right now? It, my understanding is that you're either producing black soldier flies or another type of insect. Is there any potential uh, cohabitation of multiple species where you get some type of symbiosis and have a benefit, or do you envision? it's always going to be one particular species grown in in one setting and maybe they're mixed at the end if you're trying to get a specific nutrient profile or something like that for the end customer that is a that is a really interesting one um, um, because i have um, 
I have heard of, uh, um, or I we were approached as a company as well by um, by customers that are interested in uh, in synergies between plants and insects uh, to a certain degree. For example, mushroom farming uh, and insect farming. So the mycelium that is left in the soil and so on, or in the coffee grounds or in the straw, depending on the type of substrate that is being used, that that is being recycled. Uh, at the same location uh, for as a substrate for insect feeding, which I think is incredibly exciting. Uh, we haven't seen it at, at an industrial scale at this moment of time yet, but I think there are projects along those lines. Um, we have uh, experience in growing mealworms, uh, which is an insect species that uh, can be used for human food uh, from a regulatory perspective right now as well. As Pratiba mentioned before though, the lifespan is very, it's six times as long as black soldier fly larva, uh, and the feed substrate is very different. So um, even though the type of systems that we use for, for those different two different types of insects, as long as they are an insect larva in, uh, in their uh, juvenile uh, stages, um, there are very similar techniques, technologically speaking, how we grow them. Um, but to combine them, that's an interesting thing, which I wouldn't uh, right now from a process uh, uh, um, perspective, I think it's 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 quite out there, uh, but it might be possible in the future. Maybe if it's if it's the same like larva stage and not, you know, flying versus jumping, that could be a huge, uh, huge difference. But but, but it could create space for like at the processing stage that even if uh, we are a, a single producer is producing larvae of only one species at the time of creation of the insect meal, the larvae or the defatted powder is taken from two different insects and then uh, processed together to create even a higher quality meal. Mm -hmm. So basically maybe the next step then would be thinking about um, like vertical farming? It is vertical farming. How would this fit yes. into that concept? I mean, it seems like it would be a natural, there, there's mm. got to be some synergy there. And we were talking about the individual species, right? Maybe aquaculture, poultry, ruminant, insect, whatever. But is there a way to actually combine um, in a vertical farming method? We are vertically farming, uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, insect larvae. So uh, we have production, so our production systems scale over um, um, from, from um, a few thousand tons of input to multiple thousand tons of input of fresh matter uh, uh, feed uh, per year. Um, and along those lines, we see the warehouse, basically, we, the automated warehouse that is in an automated uh, fashion, the centerpiece of the insect rearing unit that goes into that scales into the height. Um, so we have two layer systems in the or one layer systems, even for very small systems, then two layer systems for for, say, pilot facilities and then three to six layer uh, systems for the larger uh, production uh, sites. Um, it is always a challenge in terms of ventilation. <laughs> Uh, making sure you have an energy efficient ventilation system and a ventilation that is really equally distributing the air throughout the system, uh, specifically when you have multiple stages of the insects that emit uh, different levels of heat and energy. Um, that, is a, that is a challenge. Um, but 
the insect is perfectly suited uh, for vertical systems because we're not dependent on soil or ground or we don't have to transport them. We transport them always in a crate, uh, um, which is the perfect unit for any types of logistic system that goes into the in, in, into the vertical. You know, in uh, other parts of animal agriculture, um, we're very precise in how we feed our animals. You know, specific amounts of amino acids and fatty acids and minerals and trace minerals. Um, how much is known about the nutritional requirements of the black soldier fly and, and how precise are you, right? I mean, you're using all kinds of feedstuffs coming from all different directions. And uh, yeah, so, so how, how do you go about understanding uh, what needs to be supplemented with the feedstuffs that you're bringing in? So that, that's where the uh, biofeasibilities that Katrina was talking about earlier uh, directly come into the picture. Uh, like before we go into the nutritional requirement, but of course, when we assess uh, a particular substrate for its consumption, ability to be consumed by uh, black soldier fly larvae, we also look at what is it that we, what is the end product that we are targeting at. So if it's lipid, uh, we do not need to nutritionally balance the input diet because we do not need the output to be of certain uh, composition. Or if the target is just to get the waste consumed uh, and convert it into fertilizer and sell it and not really what the larval nutrient composition is, then also you do not focus on nutrient composition of the input diet. But that said, most of the time, the focus is on uh, the nutrient composition of the larvae as the end product, that we want certain quantity of protein, certain quantity of fat uh, in there. And for that, the input substrate also has to have certain level of protein and certain level of um, fat and carbohydrates. And uh, a lot is known about uh, uh, what should be the nutrient requirement of black soldier fly larvae input feet uh, within certain ranges. We also have information on what should be the proportional distribution, as in what should be the ratio of protein to carbohydrate in the input diet that you should give so that you get your uh, protein and carbohydrates in the end product in the range. We know that black soldier fly larvae as in products have can have protein somewhere between 30 to 50% of their fresh uh, weight. They can have fat ranging from 11 to 35% of their fresh weight can be fat. So we know these ranges, that these are the output ranges and on which side of the range do you want your end product to be? You have to tailor your input also accordingly. And again, for like amino acids, we know they are essential amino acids, they are non-essential amino acids. So essential amino acids, you have to make sure that they are somehow supplemented in the diet and the larvae have it, if those are desired in the end product, whereas non-essential amino acids, they will be able to synthesize uh, within the body from other macronutrients. So that information is there and then we tailor our input diet. So that's where even when the customer comes with a really nutritionally poor diet and want the end product to be of certain quality, then you cannot directly consume the waste as it is. You have to manipulate it. You have to see what needs to be added, some other cheap, uh, inexpensive ingredient, which does not add much cost. It's still a waste stream. Uh, but supplements what is lacking in the diet in order to make it nutritionally balanced for the larvae to be able to reach the target level of macronutrient in its end stage. 
Sounds like we need choline-enriched insects. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's, it's as in any other uh, livestock feed. I think it's a battle uh, about it's a battle in terms of the economics of it. So you try to get the most inexpensive uh, feed recipe that will give you the highest possible output. Um, and um, right now, um, the industry is still in a professionalization. Uh, stage. Um, I mean, we, of course, other livestock industries are also fine tuning and fine tuning and fine tuning. We're still learning uh, things about pig nutrition, right? Uh, in the, in the individual phases of the of the piglet and the sow and the um, and, and 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 all this. So um, um, we're learning. Um, we're making huge jumps. We have made huge jumps in uh, in, uh, in the insect world over the last years. Um, so that there's a basic foundation, I would say. But um, overall, in understanding the species in what's known in the industry as benchmarks, um, there's still a lot, a lot to be to be learned. Um, also, from a regulatory perspective, what there's some very interesting uh, things coming up uh, in in Europe, for example, where we will see probably pretty soon we'll be able to see more non-food uh, inclusions, um, uh, non-food applications uh, of insect products that are in those cases will in the future most likely be uh, allowed from a regulatory perspective. So it will be then used, the insect will then be used more of a um, as a waste management um, tool, uh, so to say, to have non-food application out output. Um, so all of these business cases uh, play out very differently uh, and then yeah, make it make it uh, necessary to have a lot of different feed recipes that we could that we could use. Katarina, mm -hmm. I'm going to want to change uh, direction on you here just a little bit and have you talk a little bit about the facilities itself and, and, and how you rear these uh, black soldier flies, right? You start off by saying it's the world's smallest footprint or something to that effect. So walk yeah. us through that. What's it look like? What are the stages and what do you do at each stage? Right. Okay. So um, in the rearing uh, rearing factory, so in the main, main feeding factory, um, we have uh, stage one, which is the feed processing. Um, so depending on the type of input that uh, the customer chooses or we choose, so whether it's a potato-based or a bread-based or a vegetable-based uh, recipe, uh, we might have, uh, we have a receival of the, of the product uh, in chutes or in uh, pits in the ground, uh, which is then being crushed, transported further, uh, dewatered maybe in case, sometimes even fermentation is a topic, uh, um, adding organic acid um, or pretreatment of the feeds, um, then they are mixed. So usually a feed consists of a multiple of components uh, in order to reach the right uh, fluffiness, uh, the right texture, the right density um, that we need. Um, and then it's being transported into the second stage, um, which is already inside a climate climatized con uh, within climatized conditions, which is we call it the tray handling uh, system. So it's a robotic handling system where the feed is being dosed uh, into crates uh, and the crates are being handled. So uh, in our system, it's pellet-sized uh, crates um, where the insects, um, where the feed uh, is being dis uh, dispensed into. Um, and in that tr robotic tray handling system, there's literally also a robot that doses um, 
um, the uh, baby larva, the neonates, um, into into the system, um, and then from there they go into uh, the third stage, um, which is the bioconversion chamber. Um, and the bioconversion chamber can be imagined as a big climate chamber, um, a, a rec system that might go what I said before, from one level to six levels high or even higher uh, in, some, in some cases um, where these uh, trays are stacked on pellets and they go in there and they spend, uh, depending on the grow out period of the individual feeds, about seven days of main rearing. Um, so we have a pre-rearing, which is nursery or the, the early stage of the development of the insect. That's typically five days. And then we have a rearing phase, which is the main feeding phase, which is six to seven days, depending uh, on the feed. Um, and when they have absorbed this rearing, so they, they eat the feed that is in the crate. Um, and, uh, and after they have absorbed this rearing, they are being transported back into the tray handling system. The crate is emptied uh, and the substrate plus the grown out insect larva go into the processing area, the last stage. Uh, and in the processing area, they are separated from the substrate so then you have a larva fraction and a substrate uh, fraction that then we call frass. So once it's eaten up substrate and manure, um, we call it frass. Um, and this frass is then either composted or in again in Europe, uh, we have to heat it up to 70 degrees for one hour um, to heat treat it, to, 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 to hygienize it. Um, and then it is, depending on a customer case, oftentimes pelletized. And then it's a pelletized fertilizer and the fresh larva fraction uh, goes into inactivation. Uh, and after inactivation, which is, for example, a steam tunnel. Um, so they are killed by steam or uh, by blanching, uh, sometimes by freezing in some systems in, in, in ours. But it's a heat treatment. Uh, and then they go into either a dry rendering or a wet rendering which you may be very familiar with from the, from the feed industry. Um, so um, they are then dried, defetted, and milled. So that's how you result in the fraction of fat and defetted powder. And in the wet rendering process, uh, you have the same output products, uh, but just by the wet rendering method. So um, drying down the material at the end of the process and not in the beginning. Uh, of it and that's the that's the basic uh, case of of rearing factories so what's the what's the biggest limiting factor i'd met a gentleman at a, a conference i was at in the uk that's on the uh, genetics um side mm -hmm. i'm sure you know who he is um and he was giving me some insight asking the same question uh as well what's the limiting factor on the the real scale up and decrease in, in terms of the cost and efficiency and then my follow-up question is once we get to that point do you envision an issue with um you know in the in the u.s we call them CAFOs, a confined animal feeding operation do you envision that then becoming <laughs> an issue as well with insect uh rearing uh, yeah, in, I mean, in, in terms of scale up, um, I would say that at so at um, at the various scales, um, the economies of scale come into place when we talk about smaller systems like agricultural systems, where um, we 
uh, where uh, the capital investment of a dry rendering or even a wet rendering line uh, does not make economic sense to most producers that are on a small scale. So um, what is happening also in other types of agriculture um, also starts happening in insect agriculture where there are growers. So there are uh, agricultural facilities that only do the grow out and then they might maybe they might dry the product or not even dry the product but actually transport it from their facilities to centralized processing uh, facilities so that is one trend uh, where we see that we can buffer uh, economies of scale by going with a traditional more or less traditional agricultural uh, model um, with large insect processing or insect growing facilities um, the um, um, uh, the, the, the keys of the scale up is again in the in, in the in the capital investment. So we're talking about uh, production crates. Um, so you still need with the growth of the facility, uh, your return on the processing equipment um, scales very nicely uh, because the larger the facility becomes, the more effective it becomes to have a processing line. Um, and the longer you can run those. Um, but the rearing facility grows proportionally. So your, your capital investment at a certain scale does not go down proportionally because you still need plastics or you still need materials um, as an input and to, run, to run those factories. Um, so that is, a, um, uh, that, is, that, is, that is a thing there where we're also continuously looking into, into different, uh, uh, different ways of growing. However, the, the production unit of a, of a, of a crate uh, is still, if you want to stay flexible in your production system, it is still a very nice go-to because any type of automation system can handle it. You can use standardized equipment uh, to operate with it. Uh, and therefore, it is it is it is still a go to uh, at this at this moment of time. Um, another um, another thing is the uh, the reproduction of the insect. So um, again, um, if uh, production sites are too small, um, it is not economically feasible or viable to grow um, to grow baby larvae on site. That is also what we see for most of our uh, clients that the sites are still um, too small uh, to make it viable uh, to grow out, uh, to, 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 to reproduce on site. Um, so therefore we supply um, baby larvae. Only at a larger scale does it make sense to have reproduction on site and have really an integrated, integrated facility. But as you know, with any large scale system, you face a, a threat and a risk that if you, you want to segment and uh, compartmentalize these stages of production in order to have a more resilient system to make sure if one part of the system is, is, is going down that you still have ongoing, ongoing production. I would say overall, we're not yet there in the industry to say this is the maximum, right? We're still, it's still a small industry. We're still by far not where where um, where we see the limit, uh, or where we have even approached a critical scale, of where we can say, okay, we can place that many tons of insect protein on the market. 
so, so we haven't seen that in real life yet. Mm-hmm. You said it's a small industry today. <clears throat> what are some of the uses or what species are uh, currently consuming uh, insect protein? Um, the end products, um, so most of the products traded uh, in, in Europe is predominantly pet food products. Uh, so dog and cat food. Um, of course, there's also exotic birds. Uh, uh, so, so insects as feeder animals. Of course, that is a niche market that is still there. Um, um, and uh, increasingly, we see um, inclusion in, uh, uh, in fish, uh, poultry, and, and, and pig feeds. Um, it's starting. Okay. And then what would the advantages be in, uh, in the pet food, uh, pet foods? So, um, it is a highly digestible feed. Um, we see, uh, good results. We, we know of, um, of, of studies that show good results in terms of stool quality, which is a, a really important factor in, uh, uh, in, in pet owning, um, that you have no, uh, you know, issues in having them around in uh, in the home. Um, it has hypoallergenic tendencies. Um, where we're not the experts on the end product. Uh, I think you are much more the experts on on this topic than than, than we are. Um, but uh, we see the hypoallergenic uh, effect being used a lot in uh, in the communication of the inclusion of insect in in, in pet foods. Um, and uh, it has a marketing value as well for for the for the carbon emission saving. So if you can uh, reduce carbon emissions uh, in your pet food, that's a start for many people. Mm-hmm. You know, I recall from the the webinar that you were saying that a certain percent of the diet could be replaced, and and I was unclear. Did you mean a certain percent of the diet in total, or a certain percent of the protein within the diet could be replaced with insect protein? And I think you were talking specifically about poultry and swine diets at the time. Yes, there are different levels of inclusion to replace the protein content mainly uh, in those diets. I mean, whenever we talk about uh, inclusion of uh, defatted protein powder uh, or defatted insect meal in diets, um, there is a large, a large part of that is, uh, is, is, is protein. So it's about 60% protein in the defatted powder. But of course you have another fraction that is not only proteins. So you will of course also add other nutrients in the diet, but mostly we're referring to, um, uh, the replacement of a certain share of proteins. So why couldn't you replace all of it? Is it? It actually, like even what Katrina was saying to your previous question as well, because uh, the studies that have been done, they have assessed actually inclusion of the whole larvae as well as the defatted larvae, because sometimes the fatty acids, because black soldier fly larvae tend to have fat on the higher side, can have detrimental effect on the animal. Uh, and that's why the digestibility and consumption is much better when you defat it. And that's where the inclusion range is different when you are including the whole larvae versus defatted larvae. Uh, and depending on the animal that it is consuming, uh, actually, because right now the insect meal comprises of the whole insect minus the fat, which includes the chitin, which is the structural component of the larvae. And the chitin 
actually reduces digestibility and okay. that is that is another line of research as well as uh, a possible side product chain high value end product uh, uh, side product chain where uh, chitin because it reduces the digestibility a bit but in itself is a really high value uh, biopolymer uh, when it's converted to chitosan so if we could separate that also in future it would significantly enhance the digestibility and the inclusion in animal diet would go really high as well as you will have a really really valuable biopolymer on the side so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the digestibility is low because of the structural components which come alongside as you process your insect. Uh, since we're coming from a very European-centric uh, perspective here, I was wondering if you had any insights for us actually uh, on the topic of insect uh, ingredients in the US right now. How is, how is everything going over there? Yeah, I would say it is there's increasing interest. You know, you hear you hear more more folks talking about it at different you know meetings, events, but it's certainly not at the level that it probably will be five or ten years from now, for sure. Um, I think anywhere you know, U.S., uh, Canada, similar, um, Mexico as well. I mean, all North America. It it's all about scale and scalability and i think you know from a production standpoint to be able to really feasibly use it um it's we would need to be able to scale it fairly large um to be able to have enough to go after a certain a certain market mm -hmm. um so i think that's probably the the biggest thing but as far as uh, the use that there's definitely some discussion on it in um in companion animal food as as you mentioned is occurring in europe but i, I mean i could definitely see um, a lot of application particularly in the uh, poultry sector um, in the in north america as well as court swine and and aqua um, but also in in ruminants i mean there's i think potential for um, a lot of use of it in in ruminant diets as well so with our clients um that that we're working uh, uh we're working in projects uh, we see uh, that come from a uh, uh you know a livestock uh context um and 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 and, and see the inclusion of uh in, in in the diets they mostly see the inclusion in the first step for um um for young animals um so piglets uh chicken starters um, so, um, also because the amount, the quantities needed in that respect are still huge if you compare it in, in, in the, like in a global thinking, uh, in insects right now. Um, however, it's, it's more feasible and doable at this stage than inclusion in, uh, in the main, the main feeding stages of, of, of the animals. The, 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 the scales are just gigantic um i think but uh that's and it, it's an exciting uh outlook um if we think uh, how much the industry in insects has grown until today and how much it uh we still have how how much of a a way ahead uh we have in this industry to go yeah it's interesting i was gonna ask and uh i'll have to ask uh, dr oldham scott this question but one of the uh you know, from a companion animal standpoint, it's interesting as, as people want to feed a, 
you know, certainly in the in the U.S., I know it's growing in uh, Europe as well. But people want to feed a quote natural diet to their to their pets, mm-hmm. when in fact it's actually not a natural diet. So they're actually we actually create when we you know when you see these commercials and they, it looks exactly like the chicken that we would consume or you know the the um, fish that we would consume and we're putting that into a companion animal diet. There's actually a lot of components, you know, if your cat or dog or, or whatever is out in the wild eating something, they're eating the hair, the bones, the cartilage, everything, and we're actually taking that mm-hmm. out. So from a nutritional standpoint, that actually creates some issues, some challenges if you feed your dog or cat a, a raw diet, so to speak, mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I was actually thinking as you were um, both talking if you have an insect protein in there and you could actually combine the entire insect, you may actually have a bit of a better nutrient profile if you um, can get some of the other parts of the insect in there that actually help the digestive system as it's moving through. So anyway, sorry. No, that's very, very interesting. Very interesting. Ryan, I just noticed we've passed the hour mark, and sadly, I am out of grasshopper, so that that means it is last call. And so, uh, so you know, since insects is a still a pretty novel concept, uh, what's one takeaway that each of you would like to leave with the listeners uh, as we end our conversation today? And uh, I'm going to start with Ryan. <laughs> Our last call question is brought to you tonight by Puricol. Look to Puricol Choline Chloride from Balchem to deliver the highest standards of quality, backed by the strictest process controls, for a level of purity, safety, and consistency you won't find anywhere else. I have a good, I have one that's that I think I've talked to you about, Scott. That is actually my uh, probably geeky scientist uh, coming out, but. You know, as we look and as as we were talking, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about um, they've found scientists have found water um, on the moon in, in some of the particles. And the, it was the headline just said, you know, it could could be a possibility for astronauts to live there longer. Anyway, why am I talking about this? The reason I am is because I've I've often thought if we want to at some point in the future um, populate the moon populate mars some other uh area we're probably not flying cows and chickens um to those to those uh locations to to try to uh, create a food source but certainly we would be able to plant plant protein and insect protein is the one that um i i think is potential for uh, future protein not only on this planet but again just thinking further out into the future if we were to look at a uh, uh, habitating another um, another area uh, outside of the earth so anyway that's my I I think in the future it's it's fascinating because there's application that could be applied anywhere in the world and probably anywhere outside the world quite frankly so that's that's uh something very interesting to me well thank you for that elon um (laughs) (laughs) uh, pratiba uh what's your thoughts well uh i think i i could continue uh (laughs) from him uh because it just when we were talking about the moon uh i got reminded of carl sagan 
and his famous pale blue dot uh, where he says that we are probably still in the uh, time where we can visit other planets but inhabited no uh, this is the only planet that we have this is the only home that we have uh, and if we have problems here that are that are arising out of uh, natural situation fossil fuels yes they are a problem but they are also naturally there then we also have to look at the nature for solution which is which nature has to offer and insects are the solutions for our problems right now that nature is generously offering us and we should not look away we should actually look at it and use it to save the planet and the only home that we ever have in Carl Sagan's magical words. <laughs> Thank you, Pratiba. Katerina, uh, final words, Yeah, please. after those magical words, like how can I how can I put something out there that is more visionary than this? I would I would pick up maybe on the on the topic of we only have one planet and um, um, I think when we when we think of uh, insects being the largest biomass actually on the planet and we have only managed in our human uh, history uh, to cultivate uh, and to domesticate actually two types of insects the honeybee and the silkworm uh, then it shows that we have a large untapped resource right at, at our fingertips um, that is uh, not the only solution for sure to to make our food system secure uh, and to enable us to eat something when we go to moon or Mars or, or other planets. Uh, but it's definitely one of the solutions that we should look at uh, in a specific type of application where it makes sense, where we can use the end product uh, and, and really use it, utilize it uh, to the largest extent that we can in that respect. Hmm. Very well. So, Katrina, Patriva, thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, this evening. This has been a lot of fun. Time has flown by, so I appreciate you spending some time with us here today. Ryan, as always, you have uh, been a great co-host. Thank you for all the, the help you've given me this afternoon. And uh, to our loyal listeners, uh, we thank you again for coming along once again for another episode of the Real Science Exchange. We hope you learned something. We hope you had some fun. And we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars. Mm -hmm.